Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, September the 9th, 2021. And since it's a Thursday, under the new schedule we've been under for a couple months now, it is time for it to be Thursday, Thursday, Thursday. You know, we, we changed the day. It's just as cool. But you can't really do it. It doesn't, it doesn't come off like Friday, 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 does it? Anyway, expert counsel Q&A, and I've got a great lineup for you today. Here's what we'll be doing today. John Pugliano, getting kids started investing. Wait a minute, Jack. Wasn't that supposed to be on last week's show? Yes, it was. And didn't you screw it up, Jack? Yes, I did. I, I somehow did not include John's segment. I introduced it, but it wasn't there. Oh, Jack was wrong. Yep. I, I don't have the old sound effect that I made was like, dun, dun, dun. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll make it up again. It's been a while since I've had a complete screw up. But yes, Jack's had a rough couple weeks in, uh, keeping up with things. And, uh, I somehow let John's, uh, segment slip last week, but it's going to work out. And you'll see why when you hear, uh, how I'm bookending this with my segment, uh, today with the anchor segment. Dr. Ken Berry after John that will come up and talk to us about resources and information on the carnivore diet. Amy Dingman from A Farmer's Kind of Life will talk to you about social interaction for your kids when homeschooling. I have some thoughts on that too as we've been doing that ourselves. Derek Bon Pietro will talk about transmissions that claim you don't ever need to do a service on them ever. Mm -hmm. Skeptical I am. Skeptical I am, right? Like, yeah, it's just, <laughs> I'm an old school mechanic from the Army as a diesel mechanic in the Army. When you tell me you have a transmission you don't ever need to service, uh, I have some skepticism. We'll hear what Derek has to say about that. Tim, the tool man cook, will talk about choosing an electric-powered leaf blower. Darby Simpson will talk about gearing up with the right equipment to raise pigs for meat. And I think this is a good segment because, well, I'll tell you, when I do a little add-on to his, pigs to me are one of the easiest ways to get a protein yield that there is as far as ROI is how much effort goes in and how many pounds of actual consumables come out the other end on graduation day. And then I am going to do a segment on why behavior with money is more important than how you earn it. And that will lead back to thoughts on the quote of the day. And the quote of the day I have today is from Napoleon Hill. Napoleon Hill said, actually wrote, uh, in Think and Grow Rich, Riches, when they come in huge quantities, are never the result of hard work. Riches, when they come in huge quantities, are never the result of hard work. And when you hear, like that's the quote that people pull out. When you hear the next sentence that goes with it, it makes a lot more sense. And that's why we are going to be talking about in my segment how the behavior you have with money is more important than how you earn it or how much you earn. That doesn't mean you can do it with no money right, or no work. But I think a lot of people think that the, the path to wealth is through hard work. And it's not that it isn't, it's that it isn't, but it might be, but it isn't. Does that not make any sense? It will when we get to it, I promise. And let's go ahead and kick it right off with the segment you were supposed to hear last week, John Pugliano, 
on helping kids and young people get started with investments. Well, hello, TSP. Our financial topic for today is questions about how to teach teenagers how to invest. And let's start off with Sean from Maine's question, where he asks, what's the best advice to give a 16-year-old about money, saving, and investing? He says his son is 16. He's showing interest in saving money, investing, and future goals regarding his career. Sean doesn't want to overwhelm the kid, but he does want to teach him simple thoughts about investing fundamentals and money management. I'm going to try not to get too esoteric here, but let me start out with some real basics and walk you through how to lay the foundation to teach your kids how to save and invest and build wealth. Well, I think the best way to teach anybody, whether it's a, a little kid or a teenager or even an adult, is to start at their level and then work up from there and to focus on what their interests are and to tailor your answers and the experience around that child's personal desires and abilities. And when it comes to teaching about money and building wealth and understanding finances, it really helps if it can start the process by teaching them from when they're in their childhood, because that way they're not just learning a topic, but they're learning a lifestyle. And so if you start teaching that lifestyle at an early age, then it's just ingrained in the children and they grow up that way naturally as they would anything else. There's three general steps to building wealth. First, you have to start by earning an income. And so you want to instill that in your children when they're little by giving them jobs and chores and things that they can do around the house where they can learn about production, where they learn that they spend a certain amount of time and effort and accomplish a task, and then they get rewarded for that. It's a simple concept. Unfortunately, a lot of adults have never learned it. But production is the source of wealth. And so you want children to understand that they can receive compensation and value when they achieve certain goals and complete certain projects. When they're really little, you give them little tasks. But as they grow and progress, then you give them more and more challenging things to do, and you try and base that on their natural skills and abilities and the things that they're interested in, and then you reward them along the way. You can reward them directly with money or with a point system or a direct relationship where if they accomplish task A, then they get a certain toy or a certain privilege or exactly what the incentive is, is less important than it's something that they want and that's something that they value. Because that's what you're trying to teach them, the concept of value. And that's that they're exchanging their time and their effort to complete objectives that they're rewarded for, and that's the essence of work. Once they've learned The value of work in little jobs, it can be applied all the way up through their adult career. The next concept you're introducing to them is that of savings, meaning that they have to set aside a certain part of what they earn and they have to preserve it. It's something that they have to wait to spend for the future. Maybe they're saving up for a special toy that they want to buy or to fund an activity or an event. But the point here is to get them to understand that it's not all about instant gratification. If you want to build your wealth and learn to invest, you can only do that if you have capital. And the way to have capital is to have the discipline to pay yourself first and set aside a portion of everything you earn so that you have a reserve that you can draw from in the future. Help them set up a little savings account. And it doesn't matter if you know the savings account is a piggy bank that they have in the room or if it's an actual bank account somewhere or a brokerage account. What's important is, is that they're learning to save a portion of what they earn and to really help them out and speed it along. You might want to match their contributions. You know, just like your employer matches your 401k, I think it's a good idea to match your child's savings 
because it really amplifies and magnifies in a short period of time the amount of money that they're saving. I think the best way to teach this principle to your children is to allow them to see you and your spouse doing this as you're raising them and letting them, again, as they grow and mature and understand what's going on in, in your family, let your kids hear you and your spouse make decisions about what you're spending your money on and about how you're making those economic life decisions. And again, this is something you start with the child as they're small. When they're really young, you're just glossing over things, giving them little bite-sized insights into the money-making decisions that you're, you're doing every day in your life. As they get older and their understanding grows and as they ask more questions, and especially at your son's age at 16, you really want to drill into them the understanding about value and return on investment. And from a practical standpoint, they can use this as they start setting up their career goals to, you know, what kind of education do they want to pursue? If they understand the concept of return on investment, which is taking a portion of your savings today and investing it for a future payoff, well, when they start thinking about that in career goals, then they're looking at what kind of jobs that they want to do when they're an adult and what kind of income do those jobs pay? And so help your teenager get an idea of understanding what certain job categories pay. You know, what does it pay if you're a doctor? What does it pay if you're a nurse? What does it pay if you're a welder or a plumber? And then help them formulate that path of how they get from being a teenager to getting the right education to match up with that career goal. And then in real world terms, they'll be understanding that concept of investing their time and their abilities and their money to pursue that career path, which will then provide that future income. And if they've been learning these concepts of work and reward from the time they were a little kid, then all these pieces will fall into place really easily. Now, Sean, that brings us around to the investing side of things. And I think the best way to learn how to invest is to actually do it. And to cover the practical part about investing, I want to segment to a question from Lou. And Lou says, what do you think about Fidelity Youth Account? which allows teenagers from 13 to 17 to learn to spend, save, and invest. Well, Lou, I really like the Fidelity Youth account. It's unlike any other custodial account that I'm familiar with. Generally, a custodial account is one that's set up for and behalf of your minor child, but it's controlled by the adult. In the case of the Fidelity Youth account, it actually gives the teenager, the 13 to 17-year-old, full access to an actual brokerage account. This is not a simulation, but a real account where they can trade things like stocks, ETFs, mutual funds, and there's no fees, there are no account minimums. It's an actual real-world brokerage account that's tied back to a debit card, and they can link that to other payment systems like Venmo or PayPal. So they can put money into this account, they can save, and then they can actually take those savings and real-world invest them. And since there's no transaction fees, and since Fidelity allows fractional share ownership, they can invest in any major company stock for as little as $1. So with a very modest amount of money, any teenager could have the ability to go into a real-world trading system, you know, not a simulation, but real-world skin in the game, and buy fractional shares into real-world companies and exchange-traded funds. Fidelity has also put in guardrails where the kids can't go out and buy derivatives or sell short or invest in futures contracts or some kind of a convoluted trade where they can lose exorbitant amounts of money. 
Now, there's obviously risk involved because the stocks they buy can obviously go down, but they can't lose any more money than the principal that they've initially put into it. So you as the parent, you control the exposure by limiting how much funds go into this account. If you only want them to be able to spend and lose up to $25, just put in $25. If you want them to play with $100 or $300, you put that amount in. But I think it's a fantastic way for a young teenager to not only learn about investing, but actually see the consequences, both the reward and the penalty for the investment decisions that they make. So Fidelity Youth Account, yeah, definitely check it out if you have teenagers. Well, hey, as always, thanks for your questions. Until the next time, this is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealthsteading Podcast. You know, there's a lot that I could add to that, um, but I'm going to save it because it really does apply to what I'm going to talk about when it comes to building wealth at the end and behavior with money being more important than exactly how much money you earn or how hard you work for the money that you do earn. Um, with that, let's go ahead and take a question for Dr. Ken Berry on the carnivore diet. Hey, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry. Today I'm answering a question from Mike. Mike says, can you point me to good resources and authors that deal with the carnivore diet? Background, I am 60 years old and I have high blood pressure. My doctor said that I was pre-diabetic. Oh, Mike, yeah, you got to fix those two things. They're both being caused by you being chronically hyperinsulinemic. My fasting blood sugar was always normal, right? And that's why you can't trust a fasting blood sugar to tell you if you're pre-diabetic or even type 2 diabetic because it will mislead you many, many times. I've been treated for almost seven years for retinal bleeding in my right eye, which is directly caused by the blood pressure and the pre-diabetes. My inspiration for going carnivore comes from you and from Jack's recent episode with Niti Bali, whom I have recently met and absolutely love her. She's awesome. What I like about you is you don't take a purist approach to diet. Your approach is less expensive to start. Absolutely. You do not have to eat $22 a pound ribeye in order to get the benefits from a carnivore diet. So, Mike, I have multiple videos on my YouTube channel about the carnivore diet. Jack might link to those. And then also the books that I would recommend is a book by Dr. Paul Saladino. There's a book by Dr. Sean Baker, and there's a book by Judy Cho, C-H-O. And all three of these books really explain well the carnivore diet. I don't agree with every single thing said in any of these books, but they're going to point you in the right direction reading one of those books plus watching my YouTube videos, and you will be a carnivore diet expert. And you need to be that because you've got to get the blood pressure and the prediabetes under control so that you can stop the retinal bleeding that you do know about and all the other damage that's being done that's currently invisible and symptom-free to you. This is Dr. Barry. Talk to you next time. So I, I found a, a section on Ken's website. Probably made it so long ago he forgot he did it. He's got a carnivore diet 101 page on uh, his website, which is drberry.com, and uh, it'll give you a lot of information. And the books he, he gave you will give you a lot of information. Here's the thing about the carnivore diet, though. Did it come from something with a face? Okay, you can eat it. Next question. And, and it's going to go back to, did it come from something with a face? And then you get into a little bit of, well, what about dairy product or whatever? And I think you have to determine the moderation of that on your own. But... This is one of the reasons you're not going to see many people other than people like Ken that are just concerned about the truth talk much about it. 
Because mostly what the information is is convincing yourself to trust it long enough to let it do what it does. I mean, that really is the case. It, because there's not anything complicated about it. There's not a bunch of carnivore recipes. Like, how many ways can you make a steak? Each one of those is a recipe, but that's how you do it. If you ever notice a lot of the recipes that we, we, we see tossed around are involving lots of things that are not meat. Uh, you know, the potatoes and the noodles and the other starches that go with the steak. Now, there are some ways you can make a steak a little bit different and make it better and season it differently and different things that you can do, and that's good to learn and all. But kind of my point is, if you know, he said you don't have to start out with $22 a pound ribeye, and you don't. I mean, I eat some pretty good ribeye. That's pushing it for me on price for sure, though. Um, but you don't really need to do a lot to make a steak taste good. Think about that just for a second. Salt, pepper, garlic, seared, cooked through to your level of doneness, steak on a plate, knife and fork, and eat. You will not complain. And again, we can play with sous vide. I love doing that. We can do some marinating, and we can do some pounding, and maybe we do something that's more toward a heavy grill with more char, fast and hot and slow and slow, like all different ways we can do it. But in the end, it's meat. Meat tastes good because you're supposed to eat it. That's what I think. That's why I think it tastes so damn good because we're designed to eat it. You get a potato, you better do something with it. You get a noodle, you better do something with it. You get rice, you better do something with it. You're not going to just take rice, boil it, throw some salt and pepper on it and eat it and really enjoy yourself now, are you? Think about that. And think about when Ken says the proper human diet. My belief is... The less you have to do with a thing to make it to the point where you want to eat it, the more likely it's food that your body's telling you you should be eating in the first place. And if you look at not just carnivore, where your purest carnivore, if you look at ketogenic diets, the very small amounts of vegetables and things like that that you'll consume are all vegetables that can be consumed raw or simply, you know, grilled or sauteed or something like that. They don't require much effort to make them highly palatable, especially if they're sitting next to a big steak. or a, Like last night, we ate pork chops, and we ate a little bit. You know, I think I, I cooked up one bell pepper between Dorothy and I and a big old thick butcher box pork chop. Totally satisfied, totally happy, didn't need to do much to it. Anyway, just a thought on that. Next up, how about social interaction with other kids for homeschoolers? And not being so much, well, how will they ever, just how to get a, how to get more of it into your life. Amy Dingman on that. Hello, TSP. This is Amy Dingman again from the Farmer's Kind of Life podcast and website. And I'm back to answer another question about homeschooling. This question comes from Zeb, and he asked, Do you have any suggestions regarding homeschooling your kids and getting more social interactions with other children while homeschooling? During COVID, my son remained at home with us instead of going to daycare, and I noticed he's gotten much more shy. And when we're out and about, he doesn't want to talk or be involved with anyone but us. I think the social interactions at school helped him while he was at daycare to work on those skills. So my question would be, is there a good way to get that type of social interaction with others when homeschooling? Thank you in advance for your help, Zeb. 
Zeb, this is one of the most common concerns when it comes to homeschooling. What about socialization? How do you get that interaction with other kids when you decide to homeschool? And I think when we think back to our own childhood, most of us went to public school, right, or private school. So when we think about interaction and how we learn to talk and involve ourselves with others as youngsters, that's what we think about. We think about school. If you're not currently homeschooling, it's really like this secret world. And the truth is there are so many let's get the kids together kind of opportunities out there that are happening every day that are playing out underneath the radar of people who aren't in that world right now. And I would assume as homeschooling becomes more popular with all the ridiculousness that's happening in public school and with the education system, I would assume that these opportunities are going to expand even more. When you decide to homeschool, there are tons of things that are happening locally already that you probably don't even know about. When my kids uh, back in the day when we were homeschooling, uh, some examples of what my kids did were they joined homeschool co-ops, they were in different uh, social groups and play groups, and they did park days and field trips, and they went and visited people, and they went to community education classes, and they were just out and about doing their thing because homeschooling doesn't mean you're always at home. In fact, there were times in our homeschooling journey where I felt like we were kind of meeting ourselves coming and going at the door because life was so full of stuff that took place with other people not at home. Homeschooling kind of means you have to reframe socialization. You have to rethink what interaction with others means. We we have absolutely been conditioned to think, this is how my kids meet other kids. This is how my kids learn to interact with others. Because for most of us, that happened in school. How did people interact and learn to be around others before they all started going to public school, right? They just lived life. They went out and about and they lived life and they interacted with the people they came in contact with. When you decide to homeschool, Something that's really easy to do is form groups with other people, other people local to you, other people that are kind of schooling the same way that you are. And these groups don't have to be big and they don't have to be super formal. They don't even have to be academically based. You can do your school stuff at home if that's what you want to do and then leave your house if, you know, if that's how you have it set up and, and go out and do things in the world. For years, uh, my family and one other family got together every single week. That was one of the things we did. And sometimes this other family and I, we did, we did science experiments. Sometimes we cooked together. Sometimes the kids ran off in the woods and explored. Um, oftentimes we went on field trips together. Many times the things that we were doing led us to be involved with other people. Some of those people we knew, some of those people we didn't. But it, it involved us with other people. Children forming friends with other children is important, but I think it's also important to remember that life isn't just about hanging out with other kids that happen to be the same age as you. As adults, we, we don't hang out with other people who happen to be the same age as us. That's not even a thing we worry about as we get older. So kids learn to talk to people and interact socially anywhere there are other people. The grocery store, the coffee shop, the feed store, the movie theater, the museum, the volunteer opportunity that you signed up for. The obvious thing that needs to be pointed out here, and I think this is what some people who aren't yet homeschooling or who are new to homeschooling, it's hard for them to wrap their head around this. We need to point out that the homeschooling parent needs to put in the effort to find or create these opportunities for their kids. Because when you decide to homeschool, it's not generally any longer a uh, drop your kids off and for eight hours, they're going to be around a bunch of other people, right? The parents really have to be involved with it when they make the decision to homeschool, especially if your kids are younger. It's going to be up to you to make those things happen, especially if you live rurally where there aren't like 15 other families in your neighborhood where your kids can just bop up and down the sidewalk with them. 
but it's it's not hard to find those opportunities to connect. When you decide to homeschool, you hop online and you out yourself as a homeschooler. You mention it to local people, and I guarantee you that you will discover a whole lot of homeschoolers and a whole lot of opportunities out there to involve your homeschooler in. Back in early 2007, 2008, when we were just getting started in homeschooling, there was like a forum of sorts in Minnesota. This was pre-Facebook. I wasn't even on Facebook back then. And there was this place where homeschoolers just posted things they were going to be doing. That they were going to be getting together to do events that they were participating in, field trips they were trying to organize, and if it was something you were interested in, you you could go get more information about it, like contact information and where we're actually going to meet and all of that. So this was pre Facebook. This was pre like lots of social media opportunities. So just imagine how much easier it is to find stuff now. Go on social media, whether that's Facebook or Nextdoor or MeWe. You have like a local group there, whatever it is, and look for homeschooling groups. Every state has a couple main homeschool groups or websites, so you can contact them to find out what's going on in your area. But I guarantee you, once you turn on that faucet, it's not going to be long until you flood your house. And if you live rurally, you're going to have to work a little bit harder, maybe, at it than someone who lives urban and who has decided that they're going to live this homeschooling life, and so there's more people around. So obviously, if you live further out, it's going to be a little bit more work for you. But it's it's not impossible. It's not impossible. You will find out that that as a homeschooler, things can get so busy with opportunities to interact with other people, with other children, with other adults, with other you know whoever that you may you will at sometimes be like, holy moly, can we just can we just have two seconds alone? Can we just have a couple days at home where we're by ourselves. That's something absolutely that happens. And I just like to put a note here. Uh, when you mentioned your kid kind of clamming up because of COVID, yeah, I know adults who did the same exact thing, the same exact thing. Um, I would suggest, you know, just keep bringing them around and doing things and, and not really making a huge deal about it, about the social aspect of it, because that might actually make it worse. Um, so just go out and do the things. The clamming up could have been because of a lack of social interaction during COVID, but it could also be a developmental phase. It could be him feeding off of other stuff that's going on in your house. It could be him feeding off of other adults who are stressing out about current events. You didn't mention how old he was, but... Like I know adults who came out of the COVID lockdown with a, it's just easier for me to stay here in my little hole. I don't, I don't want to go out and do things. So I have no reason to believe that there, there aren't kids who got sucked into that too. So that's my two cents about that. I hope you found this helpful. If you'd like to talk with me more, you can find my contact information on my website at afarmishkindoflife.com. And all you other TSPers, send in your homeschooling or family or parenting questions for me to answer. I look forward to talking to you all again. So good stuff. And I would add, you know. Um Definitely, like broaden your horizons as to activities. Like everybody thinks softball or soccer or t-ball or football or whatever. You you might be surprised what you'll find. <clears throat> my uh, my grandson. It's really surprised he got tired of doing this because at his age I would have never stopped. Um, but for about a year he was going once a week to an archery class, and um, this is an indoor range, which is good for the you know, summer climate here or uh, the winter climate at times as well. And they were shooting like uh, flat targets plus 3D targets. And sometimes they'd actually, if the weather was right, they'd go outside and shoot 3D targets outside in the woods. And we didn't do this as like a way to meet other kids. That wasn't originally what we were thinking. We were thinking like, it's an archery class and a kid can go to it uh, in the middle of the day. Well, hey, great. We'll, we'll do that because we have the freedom to do that. And what a cool thing for a kid to be able to do. Turns out the reason that they had it in the middle of the day, and when I say the middle of the day, I'm like, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon, 
uh, an archery class that kids could go to because it was all kids. And guess what? Son of a gun if they weren't all homeschool kids. And he made some good friendships and all there. And so it wasn't like, hey, let's make sure he gets so. It was like, let's get him something to do that's fun and get some instruction and things. Because you know how it is. I, I might be pretty good with a bow, but Grandpa ain't got no honor in his own country like a prophet, right? Um, and then, wow, there's all these other kids there. And, you know, my my granddaughter now is involved in cheerleading. And, you know, you think of that as a school activity, but certainly at her age, it's it's really not so much because they don't have it in kindergarten anyway. And that gets her in touch and meeting other girls and things like that. And my my grandson plays baseball, and he plays football. And, like, those types of things, whether the ones you think of or the ones maybe you don't. And so look around and see what's available. See what your kid likes. My my son never stuck with this, but he was part of a chess club. I'm, I'm betting there's chess clubs that are, are not directly tied to a public school. Like, you don't need a public school to play chess. Right, so like even if it's an intellectual pursuit instead of a physical pursuit, and then my other thing is, um, think about creating a homeschool group, not so that everybody can get together and study and you can employ a teacher or something like that. Just hey, we're homeschool parents and pick a day or two, a, a, a week or a day or two a month, we're going to get together and do a thing, and it could be even things like going to the zoo, right, or whatever's available in your area. And I would start with next door because that might help you get a kind of neighborhood centric uh, group. But you could also look at like meetup and things like that as well, and check and see if anybody on meetups already doing this in your area. Because all you're talking about is going out and being into an interaction with other people. And I think the reason this is over concerned about for people is that we sadly create this divide in our minds. Here's what's necessary for adults, and here's what's necessary for children. A, a show that I watched with my wife, she liked it more than me, but I'll admit it was a bit of a guilty, like, late night, you know, hospital-centric soap opera guilty pleasure for me, uh, was uh, Grey's Anatomy, which was pretty good until, like, the last few seasons it got stupidly woke. Um but there was a doctor that took care of uh, ch children and mostly infants in there. And I don't remember what her name was or anything. Some blonde chick. And um, <clears throat> she refused to call them babies or children. It's one of the best things in the whole show. And, and I love this. And my wife even has a mug now with this term on it that was given to her by a good friend of hers who happens to be here right now. Um, tiny humans. They're just little humans. So if you think about it, nobody says, oh, gee, uh, Jack doesn't have enough social interaction, right? We need to get Jack out to play t-ball because he doesn't have enough social interaction. Jack goes out and meets people he wants to, when he wants to, the way he wants to on his terms. And when I think back to school years, when I was in public school, I did have some friends from school, but some of my best friends were people that I lived near, but yet they went to different schools, Right or or the the people that I had as friends maybe I met them in school but all of our good shit we did was not inside school they don't it's not like right now they're separating them from each other and stuff like that anyway right but it wasn't like you had a lot of free time to really do a lot of stuff with your friends in school they were just there basically they were the people if you got the same period that you ate lunch with and maybe you got to screw off in gym class with maybe right but it's not like a science class you could be sitting there talking about baseball cards. Not unless you're really careful about how you do it anyway, right? So 
how do we as adults engage in social activities? We go to places we like, and sometimes when we're at a place we like, there's, a pl there's other people there that like the same thing, and we say, hey, how are you doing? We have a conversation, and then either we do or we do not hit it off. There's no, there's no, we don't have play dates as adults, right? So if we start looking at children simply as tiny humans and say, well, what do we do, and why do we do it? Well, we do these things because we enjoy it, and then we do a little bit of a push. My, my rule with my son was you will have at least one activity beyond school a year, period. Don't care what it is. can be more, but there will be at least one. There will be something more. You pick. And if you don't pick, we will pick for you. For him, it was basketball. Okay, fine. You picked one. I'm not going to – like, don't you think you want to do something next, different next year? If you like that, fine. That's so be it. So maybe you say, hey, you're going to do something. <laughs> But then whatever the something is, be at peace with it. And then they meet people, they don't meet people, they like people, they don't like people. They're tiny humans. Just remember that. Anyway, next up, what about these transmissions in these new vehicles that say you don't ever need to service them? Metal on metal, turning things, driving vehicle, never service. What say you on this, Derek Bonpietro? What's up, TSP listeners? Derek here from Affordable DC Generators, home of the Affordable DC Power Supply Solution. I've got a question about transmissions from Eric. Let's get into it. Question, do you recommend following or ignoring the manufacturer's recommendation on modern, quote-unquote, lifetime transmissions that do not need service? Background, I've been a firm believer in regular transmission service every 15 to 20,000 miles, having had multiple vehicles go well in the 300,000-mile range on the original transmission without a rebuild. In the past year, I took a leap forward from the previous new car being a 1998 to a new 2020 vehicle. I was surprised to learn there is no transmission dipstick and the transmission is advertised as not needing service. With a 22-year jump for me in vehicle technology and engineering, is it completely possible I missed something and this is now the new norm for transmissions to the last the entire life of the vehicle? Should I listen to the manufacturer and believe the lifetime no service mantra or should I follow my instinct and service it anyway? And if so, how often? Pretty sure Jack's new Challenger has one of these lifetime transmissions, too. Thanks, Eric. All right, Eric, congratulations on the new car. And, yes, you are 100% right in that vehicle transmissions, automatic transmissions, without a dipstick from the factory is the new norm. And if you can manage to find a vehicle that still has a dipstick, that is certainly the exception to the norm these days. And I would almost say it's been like that for the last 10, if not maybe 15 years When I was in the scene in the early 2000s, the dipsticks were slowly fading out at that point, and even though they were disappearing, it was still a new thing. Nowadays, it's the accepted norm. Why would a manufacturer say that it's a lifetime fluid interval? Well, they want to sell you a transmission, and even more so, they want to sell you a new car, i.e., You drive the vehicle, you don't pay anything for maintenance because guess what? The spark plugs go 100 or 120,000 miles. The transmission goes forever without service. And so they're, they're marketing to you a vehicle that is less out-of-pocket money over time, vehicle ownership cost, and so they're trying to be competitive. They don't care about the service interval of your transmission because they're hoping that when that vehicle hits 60 or 90,000 miles, you're coming back as a repeat customer, and then you're going to kick that vehicle down the road, and that's somebody else's problem. The other thing that comes into play is that fluids have gotten way better over time. So probably 15 to 20 years ago, transmission fluid, which was the old dinosaur oil, started to transition into synthetic blends and now fully synthetic oil. When you do that, 
You have an oil that's capable of withstanding higher temperatures and longer service intervals. So that's where we started to see, you know, past 90,000 miles of a service interval. And then we go to this lifetime thing. Now, as part of the lifetime service, hey, if we're making hundreds of thousands of vehicles, why are we spending money on dipsticks? All of this money is going out the door in dipsticks. Let's just get rid of it. That way, they have to come back to a dealer in order to have the vehicle serviced or even checked for that matter. So, Eric, I 100% agree with you in that there is no such thing as lifetime fluid, especially if you plan on keeping the car for its lifetime. Now, one major bearing on the fluid life is heat. Heat is the killer of automatic transmissions. So if we're talking about a truck application, especially something that's going to be used to tow or work hard for that matter, this is even more so the fact because you're now heating that fluid up even hotter than it would be just, you know, driving around and heat degrades the fluid. And so if you were to pull up a chart of transmission fluid and on one side it's going to be lifetime and on the other side it's going to be like immediate death, the only variable in between is the temperature range. And so, you know, normal operations probably like 200 something degrees, you know, this is like ballpark figure. And when you go to 220, the life gets cut in half. And then you go to 240, the life gets cut in half. And then as you creep up into like the 300s, which is like the thing boiling over, you have instant death. And so as you heat that fluid up, its service life comes down. And actually, if you were to like, say, take your vehicle out and work it super hard and that transmission overheats or runs for an extended period of time at a hotter than optimal temperature, that fluid needs to be changed immediately. In that type of application, I would cut my service interval maybe into quarters instead of halves. Now, how does the average Joe do this? We don't need a dealership in most instances to change the fluid on a modern transmission. No big deal. The first big thing is that we want to use OEM quality fluid. So, for example, in a GM transmission, truck transmission nowadays, we're using, I think it's Dextron 6, which is fully synthetic. I just had an old transmission rebuilt, and the old fluid supersedes to the new fluid. So my guy said, basically, run this synthetic Dextron 6. It's going to work much better in the transmission because it's a superior oil. So I can do that because it was just rebuilt. I'm going to start from scratch with the good synthetic fluid. But if that vehicle was newer, it's necessary that you use that specific fluid that comes with it. And this is the case with a lot of manufacturers. We all make our own types of oil now. We don't just use like Dextron 3. That was back in the day, you know, 80s, 90s, where Dextron 3 was everything but like Ford. Ford used Mercon fluid, and that was basically it. Nowadays, every manufacturer has a specific fluid, and that's because that transmission is tuned to shift and operate correctly with that specific fluid. So when you start using some off-brand stuff or something you picked up at the gas station or the parts store, and I don't care who made it, I would stay away from that. Use OEM fluid, buy it at a dealership, get it on Amazon, doesn't matter, but just make sure it's exactly what goes in that transmission and what came out of that transmission when it was brand new from that particular manufacturer. That's my biggest recommendation. Now, the second thing, we are essentially draining and then filling the transmission. Most transmissions are going to have some type of serviceable filter in the pan. So you're not going to do this like every 30,000 miles. You might do that like at 90,000 miles. So if you want to cut the service interval short, cool, just do a drain and fill and maybe add a big mile marker, swap that that filter out, which requires removing the pan. If there's no drain plug anyway, you got to drain it anyway by removing the pan. But if you got a drain plug, use that for your, your drain and fill and then pull the pan maybe at like 60 or 90 and actually change the filter as well.
that's if it has a serviceable filter. Some transmission have like a metal mesh screen filter, and that's not serviceable, so there's really no reason to pull the pan anyway. That you're going to have to do your due diligence on too. All right, last up is, is setting the level, and fluid level is super crucial in getting the transmission to work right after doing the service to it. So some transmissions have like a fill plug, kind of like a manual transmission. So, for example, I had a, a mid-2000s Tacoma, and that particular automatic transmission has a fill plug like a manual, so you're going to pull the fill plug, you're going to put fluid in it, but what we're going to do is run the vehicle to a certain temperature. So we actually have to jumper some pins in a connector, or we have to do some kind of funky thing by, like, moving the gear lever and then hitting the brake pedal a bunch of times, and that basically puts the controller into check mode. And the check mode means that the controller is going to signal you when the fluid's at a set temperature, where it wants the fluid to be adjusted, and then it's going to, like, blink a light or do something to tell you that. And when that happens, there's a third plug you're going to remove, and that's actually like a big tube that sticks up in the pan, and that overflows the fluid and sets the level perfect. At that point, you put all the plugs in it, you pull the jumper connector out of there, and you're all set. Now, I don't know what year Jack's car is, but the Chrysler Automatics have a dipstick tube, but no dipstick itself. And in that scenario, you're going to have to buy a special service tool, which you can find on, like, you know, Amazon or whatever. And it's basically the actual dipstick itself. And so what they do is they usually have a temperature chart in correlation to a measurement. And that measurement are the gradients on the dipstick. And so you, you put your special service tool in as the dipstick, you pull it out and you take your measurement and then you compare it to the temperature, which you might need like an infrared gun for or something like that, or maybe some type of code reader that gives you live data. But I guess the point is that you might have to buy a special service tool like a dipstick for your particular transmission. But I would also just look up the procedure online. There's got to be tons of videos and write-ups because there's enthusiasts on forums that, you know, do really nice work. And you got to learn your particular transmission on how to service it. But I 100% agree. Service it early. If it's a truck, I would think maybe thirty to 60000 If it was a car, maybe sixty to 90000 But absolutely change the fluid. It's the only thing that keeps it going for 300000 And if you have a good quality transmission, that's an easily obtainable number. All right, Eric. Good luck. Thanks for the questions, guys. Take care. So my addition here on the skepticism of, of, of never servicing a transmission, which I just think is asinine. I mean, you got something that's, you know, it, it is me- a metal-on-metal metal operation, right? So fluid or not, like, there's wear and tear, and, and, and keeping things optimal makes sense. But many years ago, long before TSP, I was living in Pennsylvania, and it came to the point where one of our vehicles had to go to vehicle heaven. It just wasn't worth keeping it anymore, so we got rid of it. And we bought a Jeep Cherokee, uh, Cherokee Sport. Uh, I think it's like a 96 model or something like that. And, and we got a hell of a deal on it, but it had over 100,000 miles on it. It was a straight six. The fuel index is straight six on those. That, that vehicle is actually a little bit scary to drive. When you put it down, it went. Um, and, and I really liked it. But like I said, it had over 100. It was like 110,000 miles on it when I bought it or something like that. And we were getting ready to move back here to, to, to Texas from Pennsylvania. And I had a guy through a leads group that I knew who was a mechanic. And I said, you know, I just bought this Jeep. And I, I looked it over really good, put it up on jack stands and everything, crawled underneath it. And, man, it's it's in great shape. But I also checked out, like, the... The, the pan on the transmission and the bolts on it, I mean, it looks to me like this thing has never been serviced, ever. Um, 
And uh, before I leave, I mean, I'd like to bring it in your shop and have it serviced. He said, we don't need to service them anymore. I said, you don't need to service them anymore. He said, well, not the way you're thinking. We save you a lot of money. I have a machine that will push the old fluid out, push the new fluid in, and clean out the filter when it does it. He explained it all to me, and I said, well... I don't know, but you know, you look like you know what you're doing, and I've known you a long time, and, and you know, you never steered me wrong before. So, okay, we'll do that. You know, and it was pretty cheap to do too. And he said, "Yeah, we recommend doing it every like sixty thousand miles, but it'll be fine at ninety or a hundred. All right, yeah, sure, okay." So then, uh, a few weeks later, I loaded that vehicle up and uh, put a little trailer on the back of it, which did add some heat, as Derek said, but not a. I mean, a little, a little like. Eight-foot U-Haul trailers, guys. I mean, something I got to towed with a motorcycle, no problem. And I started driving, and I was making good time, and I'd made it, you know, through Knoxville, Tennessee, and right up there in the tip. And I was somewhere between uh, Bristol and Nashville, I think. I don't remember which way that was, Bristol first or Knoxville first. Somewhere up there in that piece of Tennessee, that northeastern piece of Tennessee, pretty far from anywhere, and Happened to look in my rearview mirror. And because I was pulling that trailer, it really kind of billowed it up and held it in. There was this white, grayish smoke everywhere. And I thought, oh, Jesus Christ, have I blown a head gasket or something? Is that coming out my exhaust? And first place it was safe to pull over and not get killed by one of them giant 18-wheelers I pulled over. And I realized right away by the smell this was not exhaust And I got down and looked under the vehicle, and there was transmission fluid blowing, uh, as you drove especially, probably more so, out of the pan seal. And the smoke was because it was hitting the exhaust and burning off the exhaust. I look at the transmission pressure and, and, and check the transmission fluid level. It seemed like it was down a little, but it was okay for now. And then it's all about, well, how far can you go before you got a real problem? So I let the vehicle rest a bit so it cooled down and went on down the road. And, like, two exits down, saw a sign for a, uh, whatever's the transmission, was it Midas or Amico or what it was, the transmission place. It was a real famous thing. Pulled off and, and went to, to that place, and there was no God. The God's honest truth was there was a tree growing through the roof of it. That's how long it had been closed down. And just down the road, there was a little repair shop. I could see the sign for it, and it, it literally looked like Cooter's Garage on Dukes of Hazard. And I'm like, man, they are going to take me for everything I have. I went in there, and they they got me back on the road the same day. It didn't cost me that much money, and I would have certainly paid them twice as much and thanked them if I had had to. But I believe had I not done that service that that gentleman recommended to my vehicle and I'd just not done it at all, it probably wouldn't have happened. And those two old country boys talked to me about this newfangled concept of blowing that stuff back to that filter and said, yeah, don't do that. Don't think you're the first person we've seen that's done this and, and regretted it. And, uh, yeah. So there's a lot of this new stuff that I think is a great idea, but I think there's certain things that you will never, you'll never replace with current technology. We may have electric vehicles in the future and everything works completely differently and they're far less in need of service, but as long as we're using... You know, I don't care what you made it from, whether it's dead dinosaurs or synthetics, as long as we're using oil 
and we're asking it to do anything for us, it's going to break down in its ability to do its job over time. It's going to be contaminated over time with little pieces and particles that wear off of metal, and we probably should use old-school methodology like let's drop the pan, let's change out the filter, let's replace it with some new oil. There's my misery story. Actually, it wasn't that bad of a day, but I sure you can imagine when you're in the middle of nowhere by yourself and you see white blue smoke billowing up from under a vehicle. It's never a good feeling. With that, uh, let's hear one now on finding a l electric leaf blower from Tim Toolman Cook. Hey guys, Toolman Tim back here from ToolmanTim.co, where we build business, create community, find freedom, and share success. Back to answer another question for the expert council. So let's dive right in. In This question comes from Jonathan, and he says, Tim, what's your recommendation for an electric leaf blower? I have a paved driveway about 60 feet long by 25 feet wide. It's just big enough to be a pain in the butt to sweep by hand. I have my reservations about basically any larger battery-powered tools, blowers, mowers, saws, etc. But a gasoline blower for this driveway seems like overkill. So, let me start off by saying, yes, in this instance, gas is definitely an overkill. <laughs> you don't need a big backpack, still, or Husqvarna-style blower for this size of driveway, especially if you're not going to be getting out there and doing entire backyards and that sort of thing. However, even, they do make handheld gas-powered blowers as well, but what I found about them is they tend to be unbalanced, hard to use, and underpowered for what you have to do. Plus, you're sucking in all those fumes. Now, you know me, I'm a huge fan of the battery-powered stuff, and I understand your reservations on it. I do use a 20-volt DeWalt blower that I really like, but I will say that in the area of battery-powered tools, the blowers are still underpowered. A lot of the other lawn care gear I love, but the blowers, they're good. I love my blower for like blowing out sawdust and dirt and stuff for my workshop, but if I had to do an entire driveway with leaves, it is definitely underpowered. So what do we look for when we're looking for an electric blower? Well, there's really three ratings on leaf blowers that we look for. That's CFM, MPH, so CFMs, cubic feet per minute, MPH, obviously miles per hour, and amperage. And there's a lot of cheap electric blowers out there. And to compare them to battery-powered, the electric, you get way more bang for your buck for a lot less money with electric. So first off, start looking around. Home Depot has a really good selection. I went through a bunch of those to see what was available. And so real quick, when you're looking to pick up a blower the biggest consideration you honestly need is cubic feet per minute. That's the CFM rating. So the bigger that is, all other things being equal, that's the one number you need to pay attention to the most. You know, miles per hour is great, but if it can only blow 120 miles per hour out of something the size of a garden hose, you're not going to be getting a huge volume. So, you know, look at both, but if you have to pick just one number, look for the cubic feet per minute because that's the thing that's going to have the most power for pushing around debris and that sort of stuff. And wet leaves get heavy. Even my backpack blower, the, the gas one from Still, can struggle with some real big piles of wet leaves sometimes. So look for the bigger CFM number you can find. Now, as far as recommendations on products that I've used or ones that I like, uh, there's a couple. Uh, again, most everything's on Home Depot. If you go on Amazon, I found that their selection was a little bit low, and they had a lot of the really cheap ones, like the imports that I hadn't heard of, and a lot of them had those little 7-amp 
motors on them. So buy a 12 amp motor because you're not going to really pay much more for these electric ones. And the two that really stood out to me, I, I've used the Toros in the past and had really good luck with them. The Toro Powerjet F700, you get 725 cubic feet per minute for $60 US on Home Depot. So I thought that's an incredible deal and that's really good. And if you want to bump up a little bit bigger, uh, they also carry the works line. And for $100, $99.99, they've got an 800 CFM blower um, rated at 135 miles per hour as well. But, you know, it's an extra 40 bucks and you get an extra 75 CFM. And one other consideration, of course, as well, it is, you know, you've got a 60 foot driveway you've got to run. And unless you've got, you know, an outlet halfway down your driveway, you're probably going to need close to a 75 or 100 foot extension cord when you're doing this. So, you know, the bare minimum for a 12 amp electric blower would definitely be a 14 gauge cord. I would even look for a good 12 gauge cord. It always makes me laugh because Home Depot has these recommendations for these 16 three extension cords for 100 feet long. Uh, you know, will they hold up? Maybe, but they're going to get hot. They're going to get pliable. They're not going to, you know, possibly give you as much power throughput as you need. So, you know, if you don't have one, also invest in a good quality extension cord for that. But I hope that helps. This is one of those areas that the battery power technology hasn't quite caught up to the electric and the gas. I still really like the battery ones, but if you're looking for a good recommendation on an, an electric blower, the Toro F700 and the Works 800 CFM are both really good choices. I'll include links to both those products. Uh, I'll send them along to Jack so that they're in there. And if you guys want to know more about who I am and what I do, you can always run by toolmantim.co and uh, check out my social media links there. I'd love to see you over on Float and MeWe. And of course, I always have five videos a week, including the Sunday night live stream at 8 o'clock Mountain Time, which I would love for you guys to drop by and interact on Talking Tools. So thanks a lot, guys, and as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. I do have the two units that Tim mentioned in the show notes today for you, if you want to take a look at them. Next up, we got a question for Darby Simpson on gearing up with Pier, uh, Premier One fencing products for pigs. Hey there, everyone. Darby Simpson of Grass-Fed Life. Back to answer another question that came in via email. This time... From Wisconsin, Dylan writes in and wants to know about Premier One fencing for pigs. His question is, what Premier One fencing product would you recommend for pigs? Some details are, would one product work for the lifespan of the pig? Could you please include everything we need for the setup? We're in Wisconsin Zone 5B on 4.6 acres with about 2 acres available to the pigs. They have access to mixed pasture and apple trees. Well, Dylan, that sounds like a pretty good setup. Sounds like a nice area to set up for some piggies to run around in. And yes, there are several different products offered by Premier One uh, that you would want to consider. Now, I'm assuming that you're not farrowing because you didn't say you were farrowing, so we don't have little bitty baby pigs. Um, if you did, you'd want to look at a product they have called the Piglet Net. It's a 30-inch tall fence and they claim that that is good for mamas and piglets. I don't know about mamas. It's probably fine. It would definitely be great for piglets. Um, the product I'm going to recommend would be useful if you have weaned pigs that are, are about 
I'm going to say a minimum of 60 pounds or so. If they're much smaller than that, they can get out of this fence when you go to train them to the electrical component of the fence. And we'll talk about that more here in just a minute. And some ways that you can, um, you know, keep that from being a bigger issue. Um, the one product that I would recommend that I have personally always used is called the Pig Quick Fence. It is 30 inches tall. Um, you'll see it listed as a Pig Quick Fence 63012. Basically, that means that you know, there's uh, 30 inches tall. You've got um, uh, six horizontal wires uh, running uh, through the fence, and then uh, your posts are on about 12 foot centers, roughly. So that's the product I would recommend. They do have some different things for, like, you know, if you've got really dry soil or whatever. I don't think that's the case in Wisconsin. But beyond what product would I recommend? You wanted to know, what all do I need in order to go raise some pigs? Well, to make life easy, what I would suggest is getting seven sections of the 100-foot-long pig fits. I would also tell you to get one section of 50 feet of pig fits. Um We'll come back around to that and why that's important here in a minute. You're also going to need a charger. Now, you can run electricity out there if you'd like and use a traditional charger mounted in a barn or a shed or whatever. Um, or you can use a solar charger. Either way, uh, you just want to make sure it's got good sun exposure um, and that you know it's putting off a good amount of juice. With that, you're going to need to get a tester. And these can be a little bit expensive. Don't cheap out here. Um, I like the handheld ones that you just put right onto the fence. I don't care for the ones where you put the probe into the ground. I, you just, you know, you can spend a hundred bucks and get a good handheld tester. Um, actually, a Kencove Fence Company has some good handheld testers. Um, if you buy, you know, a name brand. Um, fence charger, if you don't go the solar route, you might be able to get a package deal where you get the tester with the fence charger. Again, there, I would look at Kencove for that. Now, if you want portable solar, however, Premier One's the way to go. If that's what you need due to logistics, that's totally fine. Uh, you're going to need to get water out there. Um, we've got videos and podcasts about what I created years and years and years ago called the Piggy Drinking Deck. And that's that's kind of hard to explain um, verbally on a podcast, but effectively it's a three-foot by three-foot treated board deck, uh, uh, four inches tall, uh, with a, a notch in the middle of it. You put a T-post down through it, and then you use a, a pig nipple drinker uh, attached to that with uh, O-rings, okay, pipe clamps, and you run pressurized water to it. And I think that's important, that you've got good, clean, pressurized water at all times. You need to check that every day. You need to check your fence every day. Um, you, you might have to buy some garden hose to get water out there. I don't like the idea of hauling water. Uh, they'll make a mess of it. They'll wallow in it. They won't drink it. They can get hot. Pressurized, clean water is the way to go. Um, you're going to need a feeder of some kind. Again, I don't like just a plain tub. I mean, it's okay when you're if you're just starting out. 
Okay, if you got to put it in the tub, that's fine. Do what you got to do. But just know they're going to dump it on the ground. You're going to waste a lot of feed. Uh, so I would look for a, um, you know, a small used feeder. You can also buy some feeders online that, that fit onto like a uh, 55-gallon drum. They just sell you the base, and then you modify a, a plastic or metal drum to sit on top of the base, and then it works like a traditional hog feeder. Those are pretty slick. Uh, you're going to want to build some kind of a shelter for them. Uh, or multiple shelters if these are in the woods and you're going to rotate around. Uh, they need to be able to get out of the weather. They need to be able, particularly if it starts getting cold outside, they need to be able to stay dry and warm. I, I would tell you to run your pigs in the warm part of the year. Don't go into November. I'm going to say in Wisconsin you need to be done by the middle of October, November 1st at the very latest. Until you know pigs and understand pneumonia and respiratory infections in pigs, do not try to take pigs to the winter unless you have a phenomenally dry enclosed barn where you can keep them warm and clean and safe from respiratory infections. Um, you're also going to need a training area slash loading area. So what are we going to do in this training area? We're going to train them to our electric fence. This is where that 50-foot section comes in handy because oftentimes you might take four 16-foot uh, cattle panels or, or maybe six of them and build a physical area if you don't have a barn with T-posts. Put the electric fence in that and put the pigs inside of that. That way if they do break through the electric fence, um, you, you've got two is one, one is none, right? So you've got a backup system to catch them there. You can also do this in a barn. Um, and then you can then double that to, to load the pigs. You want a, a physical barrier when you go to load pigs. You do not want to try to load pigs out of pig net. I've done it. It's a bad idea. Um, why seven sections? Well, so you, you put four sections together, okay, to make a big square, and it's 100 by 100. It's 10,000 square feet, roughly a quarter acre, not quite. And then when it's time to rotate them, you take your other three and you set them up on one side of those first four. You open the one between them, you rotate the pigs, you take threes down, and you just leapfrog and move them around. But that's not always going to work out just perfect. So having that 50-foot section, sometimes you got to go around trees or around brush or whatever, you know, and it just doesn't jive. And that 50-foot section will come in handy so that you can close up a corner. So that's my suggestion on what you need, Dylan. That's your short, short equipment list. Um, if you're going to do this, I would really strongly encourage you for 39 bucks to buy our homesteading pigs course at grassfedlife.co. Trust me, you're going to get way more than $39 worth of value out of that. I promise you, you will see how easy we make it to load pigs. They auto-load on their own, of their own free will. You will find that to be worth way more than $39, particularly if you have ever loaded pigs the old-fashioned way with lots of grunting and cursing and kicking and screaming and gnashing of teeth. Um, and you will you will think, oh my gosh, this was worth $39 just for this 12 minutes of video. Um, so check that course out. I really think you would find it helpful. And of course, if you want to do this for profit, you can always upgrade for the difference in cost to the Profitable Pasture Pig course. But if you're just homesteading, that's really not necessary. For $39, I teach you everything you need to know and you see all this equipment firsthand. Thanks for sending this in, Dylan. I hope you found that helpful. Hey, if you're listening to this and you would like a question answered on 
pastured poultry, pork, or beef in 10 minutes or less in a short segment, send it to me, Darby at grassfedlife.co, and you might just hear yourself on the air like Dylan did. And, of course, please check out all the resources we have, free and otherwise, at grassfedlife.co. Thanks for sending this one, Dylan. I appreciate it. Hope you find it helpful. As always, everyone have a wonderful day and take care. So I uh, just wanted to kind of throw in here, I think, especially when you look at time and being able to run a cycle, graduate an animal to meat, and then not really do much work going forward for a while until you want to do it again, the three animals that give the greatest meat yield per hour of human labor, right, an hour of human work, And ROI versus how much cost it takes to grow them versus the yield you get out of them are pigs, rabbits, and turkeys, specifically broad-breasted turkeys. Broad-breasted regular turkeys, the white ones that they do for Thanksgiving at all the turkey farms with a broad-breasted bronze that look like a giant steroid-infused wild turkey. Um, I've, I've had yields as high as 80 pounds of meat from just three broad-breasted turkeys. And, and once you get them past about eight weeks where they're stupid and try to kill themselves every day, they're literally no work. Pigs have an incredible yield, and most of the time from the size pig you'll buy, if you're not doing your own farrowing, to graduation days, about seven months. It's about half the year. About the same amount of time for the turkey poults to be, grow into uh, deliciousness as well, by the way. And so that's a that's a good now you can grow them longer, you can grow them bigger, you can get more fat on them, etc. And that's not the case if you're doing something like an American guinea hog, except the quality of that pork is just stupid good. Um but they have a great yield. And then rabbits have the yield per hour worked is incredible. And they each have their own advantages. It's far easier to butcher a turkey than a pig, and it's far easier to butcher a rabbit than a turkey. And so I think that if you're looking to up your protein game, all three of those animals deserve consideration. And then you think about yourself, your living conditions, how much work you want to do, and and what have you. Because rabbits are be a little bit more hands-on. I mean, once you get turkeys or pigs up to a certain size, and they just feed them, make sure they have food and water and move them. Right? I mean, that's if you're doing rotational grazing. Our turkeys, we did literally no work once they were big enough. They free-ranged. They hung out with the ducks in the duck house at night, and that was it. And that just they they would follow me around when I had a cocktail in the evening and pick all the little seeds we call beggars lice off my socks for me. I kind of miss my turkeys. Maybe we'll get some more next year. Anyway, I want to talk to you about discipline when it comes to building wealth and money management. And I want to come at this maybe in a way that bookends in with John Pugliano's um, lead. Uh, uh, segment today, and I want to couple it back into something that Napoleon Hill had to say. Napoleon Hill said, or I said, like I said, wrote, riches when they come in huge quantities are never the result of hard work. Now I want to tell you the totality of that quote. The totality of the quote is riches when they come in huge quantities are never the result of hard work. Riches come, if they come at all, in response to definite demands based upon the application of definite principles and not by chance or luck. So we need to use definite demands and the application of definite principles to build wealth. And this is something that I talked about, and you'll hear the segment itself 
uh, on the Miyagi Mornings recap, if you listen to that, podca that, that podcast of the week uh, tomorrow, some more on this. But when I talk about building wealth this week and the segment you'll hear tomorrow again, it's called Building Wealth is Boring. Because the things that you do to actually build wealth are definitively boring. But they actually operate on these definite principles. And they are in response to definite demands. Those definite demands could be that I have a product that people demand. That's what it sounds like and makes it think of. But there's definite demands upon the investor or the entrepreneur. Things that if you do, then you have a chance to become very wealthy. And if you don't do them, you will never become very wealthy. And where this book ends in with kids is that we teach children, I believe many of us who mean well, my father included in this, teach our children only half of the formula of wealth. And, and John talked about that. You know, you do something that's valuable to others, and then you receive something valuable for it. And that's kind of the, the ethos of the concept of the virtues of hard work. And I learned this very well from my father. The man worked until he bled. He worked seven days a week, 363 days a year. He was a workaholic. Never in my life did I see my father with a job. He always had his own business, though he did work jobs before I came around. He worked construction. At one time he was in the Army. That was more because he was told to go do that uh, than because of his choice. But So he, he, he wasn't that he never worked for anybody. But he, he knew that it was it was better to work for yourself. So he ran his own business, um, everything from a, a very successful. I say this and people think of it like a like a small-time thing, a tire shop. I mean, the guy made more money at the time than the President of the United States was making selling used tires. Okay? Um, to, like, bootlegging coal. At one time in his life, he was a bootleg coal miner. I've actually worked in a bootleg coal hole. It's... Uh, It's not a place of privilege to come from, as some people seem to think, just because you're uh, a certain color and gender. There's nothing privileged about being a bootleg coal miner. And he taught me this hard work ethos. And as young men, we tend to, if, if their father figure's around, we tend to emulate the father figure. And I did learn a little bit about investing because he was pretty good about taking some of the money that he made that came up above the, above the table, because some of the money never did, and investing that in the stock market. I remember my dad sitting at a table, you know, going over different stocks by using these books you used to have to buy that were always a little bit outdated by the time you got them that were stock charts and, and doing technical analysis and then communicating with his broker. And so there was some of that. But he never focused on this is one of the behaviors you need to grow your wealth. It was more like, Dad, don't worry about it. You're just a kid. Worry about hard work. So, like, one of my first real jobs, I worked in a turkey farm. And I worked there for two months between Christmas or Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I scrubbed the kill floor. And I worked so hard, they offered me a full-time job after Christmas of that year. And I was like, I can't take a full-time job. I'm in high school still. And, and my supervisor went, I mean, he literally, like, looked up at the ceiling, then looked down at his feet and said, oh, yeah. But he, he, I worked so hard, he literally forgot I was a part-time high school, you know, seasonal worker. That He just saw me as a seasonal worker. Hey, we offer people like this a job. 
Oh yeah, you're 16. Yeah, we no, we can't do that anyway. I'm sorry, but he he's basically saying, you know, I'll, I'll put a word for you. We'll hire you full time right away." And I had that work ethic, and it, it stayed with me in the army. It stayed with me when I got out of the army. My first job was packing boxes for six dollars an hour. I went into this this warehouse and started working there, and as a temporary employee, and they offered me full time employment in like a month. There were actually people that quit because they had been there six months waiting to get hired full time, and they didn't. And they blamed, you know, well, obviously it's favoritism. No, it was a guy comes in and kills himself. Never late, always on time, always works more if you need it. And I did that all through my career. And I'm not going to say it didn't help me. It's why I went from 21 years of age packing boxes for $6 an hour to by the time I was 25 years old, 24 years old, I think, actually. I broke a six-figure barrier and had moved into structured cabling and sales. And it was hard work that made it happen. But if I had the behavior with money that I do today, at that point in my life, I'd be far ahead of where I am now. Because the behavior that you exhibit with money after you earn it is more important than how hard you work for it, and it's more important than how much of it you earn. Money is power, money is energy, and it is It is energy that can be not just stored, but actually can be used to make more energy. It defies the laws of thermodynamics in a way. You can leverage money to create more money, where you cannot leverage energy to create more energy. You can leverage energy to do more work than you would think that it can do. And since we're paid for work, the leveraging of money as energy... It's like using a lever in a fulcrum, in the words of Archimedes, to move the earth. But it's that behavior with money. And it's the one thing that was really absent in my education as a young man as to how to approach the world with money. There's some other things too, but that was the big one. Understanding that what I did with the money was more important than earning it. My, my dad's advice was go buy a CD. Go down the bank, and I did it. I Go down the bank, when you started making money, go open a savings account. So I did. And I, I you know, not much longer after that, even making like $4 an hour, you know, you go, Dad, I, I've been saving money. Like, how much did you save? I got, you know, $2,600 in the bank account now. Oh, good job. Go go take half of it and put it in a, a CD. What's that? You know, compact discs were really expensive at the time. There's like a grand for a CD player. I didn't know what he was talking about. He explained what a CD was, so I went and bought a CD. You know what it paid? It paid seven and a quarter percent interest on a three-year CD. And so it was possible to save money that way. How are you going to save money today? You have to invest. Whether that investment is in the form of something like a cryptocurrency, hard money like Bitcoin, crypto, whether it's in something speculative in that space, whether it's in stocks and equities, or whether it's in a business that you yourself run or a business that you are an investor in, to build wealth today, you must invest the money that you earn at some point. That doesn't mean you should be worrying about investing when you have 500 bucks to invest. Because when people say, what should I do? I have $500 to invest, and I say you should invest in a savings account or a jar to put your money in. Because you don't have enough energy to do much leverage with yet. Right. 
But you have to invest, and you have to understand why that is the case. It is not just the case for those that want to follow the advice of Napoleon Hill and earn wealth in huge quantities. Napoleon Hill is a product of the 1920s and 30s when you definitely could save money, when the dollar was still pegged to gold, when the dollar was still in a way hard money. It wasn't fully hard, but it was still hard. That is the time that this advice comes from. And the advice, again, is for earning huge quantities of wealth. Well, the other thing you have to understand is at the time this advice came, the average person knew how to build wealth. Work hard, save your money. With hard money, you can do that. Hard money turns hard work into heavy wealth. But he was talking about huge quantities of wealth. The government and the Federal Reserve have conspired today where you don't have a choice anymore. If all you do is work really hard and save your money, you end up poor. In, in the words of Michael Saylor, the road to serfdom consists of working exponentially harder in order to earn a currency exponentially weaker. So what happens when you only apply the ethic of hard work today? to your efforts to build wealth. The, the, the system is designed to extract the wealth you're trying to accumulate. We think of wealth like a battery, and it's, it's a good analogy. Because what happens to a battery that you put up on a shelf, charge up to 100%, stop charging it, don't use it and walk away and expect to come back that that battery will have all the energy you put into it Two years ago, you'll you probably find it dead. But if we take that time into a shorter time, it's more like what happens to your monetary wealth. You come back and the battery that you spent so much energy charging up to 100% of capacity is now at like 84%. Where'd the 16% go? It evaporated like a fart in the wind. It dissipated. In the case of your money, it went into the coffers of the people that printed more money. That's how your money went away. They printed money. The new money sucked value from the old money. So not only do we have to take the approach of hard work and not getting into stupid forms of debt that make us pay ten times the value of a product that's a consumer-level product than it's actually worth. We go buy a computer with a credit card, for $1,100, we end up paying $3,000 for the computer. And the same computer today, in fact, a much better computer today, when we finally paid the $3,000 in debt off with the credit card, because of technology deflation, you can buy it for $800. Translation, you pay $300 for an $800 computer. And, and the only way that works is if in that time that computer made you $50,000. That's the behavior with the money or the asset after you acquire it. And so many people out there today in our space, in our world, the people like I'm talking to you today, we have old generational values. We value the advice that came from our grandparents. I know I do. We look back to the people that lived through the turn of the last century, our great-grandparents, the Great Depression in the World War II years, and our grandparents. 
and the people that came up in the 60s, right, that had to fight through that period of time in our parents. And we sit as old Gen Xers now looking out as grandparents ourselves, and we think, I want to teach these kids those ethics, those morals, that ethic of hard work. You're teaching 20% of the formula of wealth, though. And if you're still operating on it yourself, you may wonder, where's my wealth? And have you ever thought about how ironic it is that most parents that teach only the hard wealth, hard work ethic never have wealth? And you're trying to train the next generation to do something you yourself have not been able to do. It's amazing that they succeed at all, isn't it, when we look at it that way? It's actually no surprise then why we now have the first generation coming up that may, in the end, have less wealth than their parents in the history of the country. In the history of our country, every generation on the average has done better than the prior generation. We're on the cusp of that being the first time we failed to do that. Because they robbed our wealth, they robbed our mechanism of storing wealth, and they continue to exploit it, and they've taught us just work hard, do what you're told, Put away 10% and you'll be fine. And this is what I mean about the behavior being more important. Let's say that we have two people, 24 years old, out of college. Both of them get their first job. One gets a job making twice as much money as the other. Both of them immediately do start saving for their future and investing. The person making the lesser amount of money saves 10% of his income. The person making twice as much only saves 5% of his income. He says, that's enough for now. The translation is, both of them are saving the same amount of wealth. I'll tell you something counterintuitive. Odds are, odds are, the person saving 10% of half the money, even though it's the same amount of money when they start, will end up in their retirement. Unless some weird, you know, you know, life-type life, life type meteor hits them like cancer or something, right? The person at half the income and double the savings will probably end up retiring far wealthier than the person with twice as much income and half the savings, even though the numbers, like, in those first 10 years should look almost identical. And this is why. The person who's putting away 10% making half the income learns very quickly how much they really can do with what they have. And they will always be able to make more money. And hence, they will always be able to save more money. The person only saving 5% making twice the income has much more disposable income and is going to develop the habit of disposing of income. The person that has to work hard to meet that bogey of 10% is going to develop the discipline in those early years. And when the income disparity change, you know, when it comes together, when when they when the when the lower income guy catches up with the higher income guy, and odds are he will by developing that discipline and that mindset. He's going to be saving, investing and leveraging a lot more than the guy who started out ahead of him. It may be hard to understand, but we, we need to start working to understand this, and we need to start working to teach our children this. We need to start working to teach our children this. It's not just start a business. Okay, you started a business. Now you have an income. Great, now you have an income from your own activity instead of your activity for somebody else. Doesn't matter. 
You still have an income. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to behave with it? Are you going to spend it all? What are you going to buy with it? What are you not going to buy with it? How are you going to invest it? How are you going to manage it? And back to our quote of the day. Riches, when they come in huge quantities, are never the result of hard work. They're not the result of hard work. They're the result of the intelligent investment, management, and leveraging of the wealth that came from work. Whether that work was hard or not. Don't tell me that hard work pays off if you're talking about monetarily. It can. Doesn't necessarily do it. I know people that worked harder than me their whole life and don't have a pot to piss in. I know people that, is, that, that worked 10% as much as I've worked, if we talk about actual work ethic, and have 100 times more. They did a better job leveraging the wealth. Now, this is not crony capitalism. This is not bankster wealth. This is real wealth. This is developing things of real value that people really choose to do business with you for. Or taking the money you earn from such activity and putting it into real hard assets or high-returning assets and doing so consistently over time with patience. Patience patience may be the most important virtue of wealth building that we're not teaching because it's a dangerous one to talk about with people because you can tell people to have patience when it comes to wealth building, and they use that as an excuse for inaction. One day my ship will come in. That's not what I mean. I mean it's always working hard relative to the thing that needs doing. It's always being mindful of the income in versus the outgo spend. It's always being mindful of the investment, and it's having the patience to keep doing it. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Um, it's been a great week, even though it was a short week. We will have the Miyagi Mornings recap tomorrow, and if you like that little piece I just did there, I think you'll like my lead segment from last week on building wealth being boring as well. Remember, I talk about wealth building on the Survival Podcast because it is an incredible part of meeting the goal of modern survivalism that we set here, which is living a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Wealth makes your time really great when times are good, and it makes it pretty damn good when times are bad. Uh, with that, let me remind you, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can always help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And today... Our item of the day is Sacred 7 Mushroom Extract Powder. I'm not going to say much about it. The show's gone pretty long already this week uh, or today. But I'll just say that I take this myself because the seven mushrooms that it's made up with have absolutely scientifically proven anti-cancer properties. I'm not making any health claims. I'm not allowed to. I'm not a doctor. I don't pretend to be one. Um, but I learned about this product from Nurse Amy. You can read the whole story about why she found it. It's not directly related to cancer. Um, but when I saw what it did, and I saw the research that went into these seven mushrooms, and I realized that it cost me a whopping 30 cents a day to take this stuff. Um, and actually, it's like 28 cents a day. And I decided that I and my wife would start taking this. And I ordered it, and it said the easiest way to make sure you consume it every day is just put a, a quarter teaspoon of it in your coffee. And I thought, well, you know, mushroom-flavored coffee. I don't know. So I dropped a quarter teaspoon in, started up, drank the coffee, couldn't taste it. All right, fine. Done. It works. I'm, I'm done. I'm good with it. 
Um, the price and the research behind the mushrooms in it is just too cheap for me not to do it. If my wife does it, if my wife will, will drink it with, in coffee, you'll drink it in coffee. And you can do it any way you want. It has a quarter teaspoon a day. And it's you know what the ingredients are? Uh, the ground-up powder in equal amounts of seven mushrooms, full stop. There's nothing else in it. And, again, a big bag of it's like 40 bucks, and it lasts almost a year. So check it out, Sacred 7 Mushroom Extract Powder. I think if you, if you read the study that was done um, on five of these seven mushrooms that Amy sent me, I think you'll decide, too, for, for less than 30 cents a day, there's no way this doesn't belong in your life. But that's up to you. Again, I'm not claiming anything. I'm just saying the research is there, and it's cheap, and it, it works, and it's a great product that's very well-reviewed uh, on Amazon and other places that it sells. And reminding you, again, you can always support us no matter what you buy as long as you do your online shopping at tspaz.com. Also consider becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members to learn more about that, and it's a membership that will pay for itself for many people many, many, many times over. Anyway, I want to talk to you about our song of the day today, and it really wraps into my segment that I did from uh, the quote by Napoleon Hill and thinking multi-generationally and what have you. Um, this song is deceptive in its depth because of its melody and folksy nature uh, when it's from. It's from 1970. And we were kind of in a transitional period where sev the 70s, is, there was some good rock in the 60s, but it was really in the 70s when it really became more of a thing. And so 1970, we were in this transitional stage, and, and Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young are more in that folk song, singer-songwriter groove anyway. And the song is Teach Your Children. And it's kind of such a happy almost you know today it would probably be a country song the the absolute depth and soul of the lyrics gets lost a little bit i think it's designed that way in purpose by the way and it really talks about the the nature of one generation to the next and how parents suffer for the good of their children and their children really never appreciate the sacrifices that are made parent really does the job that the parent feels they're supposed to do, a lot of times the children never see it. And in the end of our lives, many times it's our children that suffer to our benefit. And so, and on the cycle continues. Well, in today's episode of Miyagi Mornings, and again, you'll hear the, the main body of it tomorrow, but you, this is one you might want to go listen to the video and see the video of it. Because usually with the videos for Miyagi Mornings, I stay around and talk to people in the live feed for a little bit after I stop recording for the podcast. And we were talking about Bitcoin today, and we got on the subject of multi-generational wealth. And the reason this song has become what it is, it was written in the first place. We had already made a lot of this shift. I mean, we're talking like, you know, heyday of the boomers, 1970, right? That's when the boomers were where the millennials are now. And this is how we teach wealth planning today. This is actually how we teach wealth planning. Save enough money and invest it well so that you can start withdrawing it after you retire. And it plus your Social Security plus any other pensions or anything is enough money for you to live comfortably until you die. Hmm. Doesn't sound like there's a lot of thought 
about the children, the grandchildren, and the great-grandchildren that you'll leave behind. America was built on generational wealth. It was. And I don't mean banksters. And I don't mean Rockefellers and Carnegie's. I don't mean that kind of generational wealth. America was built by farmers and ranchers and entrepreneurs who, by the very nature of what they did, created generational wealth. If you built a business and you apprenticed your son in it and he took it over, he started ahead of where you started. And so on and so on. If you built a farm and you made it profitable and you left it to your your your, your prodigy, they could then build on it more. They could make it bigger. They could make it more successful. We were built on generational wealth. Right up until we destroyed the money. And now we pay people to give us advice like, make sure you save enough money to live well until you die. If there's anything left for your kids, fine. Buy some life insurance, otherwise screw them. Teach your children well. They follow your example. If you care about your grandkids, start by caring about your kids. And I don't mean being just a good dad, good mom, hugging them, stuff like that. That's all important. I think this is the big thing for me. The most valuable thing that's come out of cryptocurrency for people. I hear people in their 30s talking differently about money than I've heard the average person speak about money my entire life. I, I used to listen to old people talk about what they would leave behind to their children. And I'm talking when I was a little kid. The vestiges of that generation were still around. And it went away. And it's coming back. And it's because we're thinking differently. Because we're using different money. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You, who are on the road, must have a code that you can live by. And so, become yourself, because the past is just a goodbye Teach your children well Their father's hell did slowly go by And feed them on your dreams The one they fix The one you'll know by don't you ever ask them why If they told you you would cry So just look at them and sigh And know they love you And Before they can die Teach 
your parents well Their children's hell Will slowly go by And feed them on your dreams The one they fix The one you'll know by Don't you ever ask them why If they told you you would cry So just look at them and sigh